All right. Thank you, Greg, for reading that. If you missed it, that was Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 to 19 and 25 to 30. Always take note when the lectionary schedule cuts verses out. There's always a reason they wanted us to skip those verses. But first, a little context. The John that Jesus mentions is John the Baptist. And I don't know what you remember about John the Baptist, but John the Baptist was another radical reformer like Jesus, possibly his cousin, active at the same time, same place. And John was from a branch of ascetic Judaism called the Essenes, and they lived communally away from main cities together in voluntary poverty. So both John and Jesus preach repentance and justice, and both of them are eventually executed for the ways they push back against the powers that be. But they do this same work in different ways. John pushes back against this corrupt society by withdrawing to the desert. And Jesus pushes back by jumping in and going straight to the most vulnerable people. And by the 11th chapter of Matthew's gospel, John is in prison for sedition and Jesus is just kind of getting started. So John's saying to their crowds, look, no matter how we pursue justice, you're not happy. You criticize John the Baptist for not eating enough and going alone. You criticize me for eating too much and going around with sinners. But look at the fruit of our work. The blind can see, the lame can walk, the deaf can hear, lepers are clean, the dead are raised, the poor receive good news. Wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Or actually, some of the original manuscripts say wisdom is vindicated by her children, those that follow in her way. In the verses that are cut out, Jesus blasts the unrepentant cities, people who have heard the good news and witnessed miracles but refuse to change their lives or minds. And he says, woe to you, and he names names, and he threatens judgment, and you can feel his frustration at people's inaction. No wonder the lectionary cuts that part out, right? They're trying to spare us a little bit. But then in verse 25, Jesus turns to God and says, Thank you, Father, because this good news of grace and justice, so many people, wise and intelligent people, just don't get it. But thank you that some people do, and that it's the infants in the faith who get it, the young ones, the people you would least expect. Thank you for these topsy-turvy truth speakers. And then Jesus ends this passage with some of the most beautiful and life-giving words in the Bible, and he speaks them straight to the same people he has just lambasted. And he looks right at them and he says, Come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, rabbis in that day, teachers like John the Baptist and Jesus, they were all teachers of the Torah, the first five books of our Bible, teachers of the Word. And each teacher had their own set of interpretations for how you live out the words of the Torah. And their set of interpretations was called their yoke. So if you wanted to follow a particular teacher, you took up their yoke. You took up their way of interpreting things and their way of living faithfully. And so Jesus says his yoke, his way of interpreting what the word of God asks of us, it's easy, it's restful, it's light. Kind of a contrast to the verses preceding it. And this is, this is a pattern Jesus has of following up his most demanding teachings with his greatest words of grace. And it's kind of like, do you remember the time when Jesus, Jesus tells someone to give away all they have to the poor and the person won't do it? And Jesus says, wow, it is easier for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter heaven. 
And the disciples are like, oh, so it's impossible then. And Jesus says, yeah, for you. But with God, all things are possible. It's kind of like that, right? This really demanding thing and then this really graceful thing right after it. And it's something Jesus does a lot. Um, and it's this tug where Jesus asks everything that we have and then gifts us everything we need. And this loop um, of, of demanding everything and then at the same time things being freely given, it's like somehow right at the core of our faith. So what is Jesus asking of us in this passage? I just got back from a week-long conference. It was the biennial national meeting of the denomination I belong to. I'm not actually Lutheran. I'm ordained in a denomination called the United Church of Christ. And every two years, representatives from churches all over the country come together in this one giant assembly to vote on the business of the church. It's called the General Synod, and there are workshops and worship and speakers too. But these debates and votes are kind of the main thing, and they do this for six full days. So sometimes it gets a little dull. Um, but sometimes it's kind of beautiful to see 2,000 people like prayerfully working together to make faithful bureaucracy happen. One of the coolest things to me uh, um, about General Assembly is how painfully hard they work to make sure everyone has a voice. So the way they do it is you've got this huge convention center, 2,000 people, and they have six different microphones set up and people line up to weigh in on whatever issue is under discussion. So you go to the green microphones if you want to speak in favor. You go to the red microphone if you want to speak against. You go to the yellow microphone if you just have a question or you have a different idea altogether or want to offer an amendment. Um, and then the moderator just keeps rotating through all the different mics until people move for a vote. And a lot of the motions that they were deciding on this week were public statements and were not controversial at all, at least in this denomination. It's like a, it's an ultra progressive denomination politically. So like one of the votes is a resolution in favor of programs that reduce gun violence. Like who's pro-gun violence, right? No one. So everybody is lined up behind the green microphone. Um, but there was a huge line there. Um, and most of the people in line were people who were moved to speak because like they've witnessed the effects of gun violence firsthand and, and they were in line because they wanted to share their story. So when we saw that there's this huge line at the green microphones and nobody at the red microphones, someone says, should we just move right to a vote since everyone is for this? But this other guy stood up and said, look, if you are someone who has not yet been directly affected by this issue, please don't call for a vote. Um, these people have experienced this in their lives, and this is their turn to speak. I actually tried for a while during that conference to keep a tally of how many different people addressed the assembly at some point. But I mean, it was impossible. There were so many people. And not just in the debates on resolutions. Another thing they do um, is at the beginning of each plenary session, they have what are called speak outs, where anyone anyone can speak to the assembly about anything they want for 60 seconds and and so this great hodgepodge of things emerged right it's like one person got up in a jackie robinson jersey and said did you know jackie robinson was a member of a united church of christ church and that is why the leader of our denomination was sworn in on april 15th that's jackie robinson day and someone else stood up to ask for prayers for the rioting in france and this other guy stood up and said i just want to give a shout out to someone who has been at every single General Synod since 1973. 
Um, he went to his first one at age 17. This is his 26th general synod in a row. And let us acknowledge this remarkable string of faithful attendants. Oh, and by the way, I am proud to call him my husband. <laughs> so sweet. Well, guess who got in line to do a speak out on the last day of the conference? <gasps> Me, never miss a chance to speak into a microphone, right? <laughs> I was attending this synod with, um, there's 13 other pastors who are my my cohort for this six-year continuing ed program I'm in. And one of them, she's doing really great research work about part-time ministry and wanted to spread the word, um, but she was feeling kind of shy. So I volunteered to get up and brag about her. And first I'm like, heck yes, I will brag about you in front of 2,000 people. But then I'm up there and I'm waiting in this line for my turn and I'm like, oh no, I have to say words in front of 2,000 people. So I'm standing there in this long line and I'm waiting for my turn and like so unbelievably focused on myself and my ego and my hair and the line between me and the giant cameras getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And then when there were just two people left in front of me, that is when something happened that made whatever I was going to say completely irrelevant. Now, to understand the significance of this moment, there are three people that you need to know about. The first is Michael Judge. He was a Catholic priest, well-known, beloved chaplain of the New York City Fire Department, and he became the first certified fatality in the 9-11 attacks uh, when he was killed by flying debris while praying over bodies in the World Trade Center after the first plane hit. And before his death, he had started an AIDS ministry at St. Clair's Hospital, which had the city's first AIDS ward. Uh, and he just did funeral after funeral after funeral. And one time he anointed a man who was dying of AIDS and the man asked him, do you think God hates me? And Father Judge picked him up and kissed him on the forehead and rocked him in his arms while he cried. And after Father Judge died, people found his journals and they learned that he also had been gay, like so many of those to whom he had ministered. So Michael Judge, that's the first person. The second person you need to know about is Anne Canesfield. And when those planes hit the Twin Towers, Anne was a successful broker on Wall Street and she was preparing for an interview that was scheduled to be held later that day in the World Trade Center. Um, and after 9-11, she just knew she needed to do something different with her life. And then she heard the story of Michael Judge. So she left her career on Wall Street to go to seminary, and she eventually became the first openly gay New York City Fire Department chaplain, a role she still serves today. That's Anne. The third person you need to know is a man whose name I don't know and quite possibly won't ever, but this was the man who was standing two people ahead of me in line for the speakouts. And when he stepped up to the mic, he asked us to look at the back wall of the convention center. And after he said that first sentence, he was so overcome by emotion that he could not say another word. And he like, he tried a couple times to speak, but he just couldn't do it. And so finally he just walked away from the mic and started walking off the floor. Lining the back wall of the convention center was a display of AIDS quilts. And each quilt is made up of eight blocks and each block has stitched into it the name of somebody who died of AIDS. And each of the blocks are three feet by six feet, which is the size of a coffin. And they're made and submitted by friends and family of people who died. 
So that was the speaker two people ahead of me. And the speaker in front of me, standing behind this man, was Chaplain Anne Canesfield. And after he walked off, she stepped up to the mic and she said, look, um, I was coming up here to plug my book, but I can't talk about that now um, because my brother before me couldn't talk about what he wanted to say. So let me try and say what I think he was going to say, which is to point out these AIDS quilts and the lives that they represent. And I wouldn't even be here today, she said, if it wasn't for Father Michael Judge and his ministry with people with AIDS. So we will not forget. We will honor all those lives and we will honor all those who loved and cared for them. And we will honor those who laid down their life in service to others. And the whole assembly rose as one and clapped and clapped and clapped and clapped until that man who couldn't speak had crossed the entire convention center floor and exited out the side doors. Three powerful people, but there's actually a fourth person you should know about. His name is Aiden, and he is one of the many fabulous kids at Hephatha Lutheran Church, and he is the author of a book called Aiden, the Lead-Free Superhero, which he and his mother uh, wrote about his experience with lead poisoning, in which they got to present to Vice President Kamala Harris at the White House. Um, and they are some of the many powerful voices at Hevitha that are speaking out about the injustice of lead poisoning and calling for action that is needed to keep our kids safe and healthy. And you're going to hear more about their work, which, which really needs to be our work, all of our work soon. But for now, hear this. Friends, your voice matters. Your voice matters when it sounds with confidence, your voice matters when it whispers and shakes. It matters when you speak as part of a group and it matters when you speak alone. Your voice matters when you make clear demands and your voice matters when it has no answers but only questions. It matters when it calls us away from the world like John and when it calls us into the world like Jesus. Your voice matters when you sound educated and intelligent. And your voice matters when it sounds unpolished and bumbling and honest as a child. Your voice matters when it's only a wail like an infant. Whoever you are and however you speak, your voice matters to us and it matters to Jesus. Hear this, your voice matters. In fact, it matters so much that there are only two things, just two, that matter more than your voice. The first is the voice of anyone who is less listened to than you. Hear them, seed the floor. It is their turn to speak. And the second is the voice of Jesus who speaks to you both words of challenge and words of comfort. So when it's your turn to speak, speak out. But before you speak, remember what Jesus speaks over you first. My child, my beloved, with you I am well pleased. And after you speak, remember what Jesus says last. Come to me, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. May Jesus' words speak to us even louder than all of our actions. Amen. I heard the voice of Jesus say, let us sing.